0: You know, in the Senate. Senate. here we go.
1: That's right. It's terrific.
0: In three, two, one. Well, you know, you've heard of Louisa C. Grieve on my podcast at the Uyghur Human Rights Project. Now we got her on video too through Zoom. What a what a time this has been to discover video casting, right, Louisa? So welcome, welcome aboard. Good to finally see you face to face in one way or another. So uh, congratulations. Uh, Tell us why the Senate, you know, pass protections for the Uyghurs, for the Uyghurs.
1: Absolutely. Well, I have to give credit to both, uh, to the, to the entire U.S. Congress, the Senate uh, and the House for listening and recognizing that despite the fact that China was trying to completely cover up its really harsh policies, not only against the Tibetans, but against the Uyghurs, the senate staff the house staff and the members themselves were listening and they realized that something really big was happening violation of a norm that hasn't been breached in a long time there you know i can quote uh congressman chris smith uh right there in in new jersey saying this is the largest incarceration of an ethnic minority since world war ii so they they wrote this bill actually a year and a half ago they really wrote it and then made it public in october 2018 so Uh, People who know Congress say, well, that works pretty fast for, you know, between a year and a half. But of course, for the Uyghurs, it couldn't be any sooner. So they're very thrilled that last week the Senate passed it unanimously.
0: All right. Well, you were home. We were all home to watch it happen. But how excited were you when you saw the vote tally? It
1: was great. Um, The good thing about the the, the way it was working in the Senate was that it was was passed by unanimous consent. And um, so um, there was once it was passed, it was passed. We knew it would either pass all the way or it would be held up and it passed. Um, so next up is the House. And we're hearing that it might be as soon as next week.
0: And then President Trump will put a signature on it next week. And we're going to have you back to talk about what it means once it's in law. Maybe we'll get you back on after that whole thing occurs.
1: Absolutely.
0: But I've got to ask you, why um, Americans really don't know about the okay. Uyghurs? So how does the Senate know but not regular Americans, like how did what what made it stand out to them to get this approved?
1: Well, I want to say that um, I, I despite the fact that many times the Congress gets very low approval readings from Americans, there are a lot of dedicated people who are taking seriously their responsibilities to set policies for our country, and in the realm of um, foreign policy and uh, national interest mm-hmm. um, and and specifically human rights, they are paying attention to those places where there are horrific abuses. So um, also my organization, the Uyghur Human Rights Project, been steadily producing reports, you know, titles where if you just read the titles of our reports, nobody has to read a human rights report. Who does that? Right. Right. (laughs) Uh, But if you look at the titles, you know, Deception, Pressure, Threats, The Transfer of Young Uyghur Women Mm. to Factories in China. Um, the assault on the on linguistic rights of Uyghurs, with the elimination of their language in the schools, um, re- religious repression, um, harassment abroad—you know, the Chinese government going and um, harassing people who don't even live in China if they attempt to speak out about what's happening. So, um, we'd like to think that some of our reports were were read by those congressional staffers whose job it is to look
0: out for things that violate American values. And you are an advocate for the Uyghurs, so. What was your role with this whole bill and passing it?
1: Well, I can say that my organization, um, for a long time before I joined, um, I've only been with the organization about two years, but always tried to um, meet with those members of Congress who stood with Tibetans, who stood with Chinese dissidents, who stood with the people of Hong Kong, who stood with the people of Darfur and every other hot spot around the world, and ask them. Our Congress, we need to speak up because we can see things going downhill. We can see the discrimination and the repression mounting. And if China's a big market, no one wants to criticize China, afraid of business interests being hurt or diplomatic retaliation, but we really want you to stand up. So that's what they said for years and years. And then when this terrible crisis erupted, um, uh, some people there were in a position to write a bill. And my organization did uh, testify before Congress. We were invited mm-hmm. by um, both the House House of Representatives, uh, East Asia Subcommittee, and also a special commission that looks at China and the rule of law. Um, And so Senator Rubio, Mm -hmm. Congressman McGovern, Congressman Smith, um, Congressman Sherman, and Congressman Yoho had a chance to question the the chairman of our board. And that usually
0: happens before they approve it, right? Those hearings happen right before they approve it?
1: That's right. So in September 2018, um, our chairman, his name is Nuri Turkell. He's the first uh, American educated Uyghur lawyer in America. Uh, he testified then and had a list of, I'm trying to remember, I think it was something like 21 recommendations. And so many of them made it into the bill. So we were really happy about that. And he testified again in October this past year in, in 2019 about forced labor. And now there's a forced labor bill in front of the Congress.
0: Amazing. Um, Well, does this allow uh, Uyghurs to now come over to this country to flee the oppression they're under?
1: I must say that uh, this country is just so beloved by Uyghurs. um, What did somebody tell me? They think it's like a new Jerusalem for the Uyghurs, because here they find life as it should be, um, that civil rights, political rights are the norm, and when they're violated, people can fight back, the press can call it out, uh, you can have lawsuits, um, citizens can raise their voices, they can, of course, do political campaigns, they can do issue campaigns, and it's like uh, living, uh, having lived for 70 years under the Chinese Communist Party, just like every other citizen of China, but also on top of that feeling their entire nation, you know, their sense of an ethnic identity, the right. nation of the Uyghurs was being steadily repressed um, they just, they really feel America's great. And uh, many people came here for studies. And so when they got the degrees, they were able to get to stay. And anyone who's come with the need for asylum, nobody has uh, been denied, as far as we know, political asylum. So we have to give credit to the U.S., um, ICE and the U.S. government for recognizing they can't be sent back. They would face terrible human rights abuses if they were faced. That
0: is really encouraging to hear that they are protected here, which is great. Now, prior to this, how many Uyghurs were in America right now? Great question. People
1: always ask, how many Uyghurs are there? And the answer always used to be, we don't know. But um, in 2015, the U.S. Census Bureau, one of the periodic in-depth studies um, asked a question what language is speaking on your home and so at that time it was between 8,000 to 10,000 households spoke Uyghur at the home so wow. that's a pretty good guess and that's it's,
0: that's almost unheard of you know we're not hearing about that at all but thanks for giving that some light here.
1: Yeah and that doesn't even include kids under five so um, there are a lot of there are families and um, I mean I have to say the Uyghurs have the handicap of having a, a name that's hard to pronounce or how to spell. Like, what is, how do you spell it? It starts with a U. Um, but we're really, I mean, we're thrilled that um, media observers like you, Alex, are recognizing that um, just because it's unfamiliar doesn't mean it, you know, it's not a reason to to ignore it. So they're very grateful for the attention.
0: Well, so this, this thing's, this bill has been on the burner for a while now since October eighteen. But would you say that this pandemic heightened the need to get this passed as soon as possible? Oh, for sure. Uh, the fact is that
1: one thing that's happening is that I think a lot of Americans are paying attention in a specific way to how China is governed by the Chinese Communist Party. And they're recognizing that deceit and cover up is really routine. And of course, that happens in every political system. Like we said, you need the vigilance of the press to fight against the tendency for those in power to try to um, limit information about what they're up to. So we always have to fight for transparency. But in China, it's simply routine and they can do it if they don't like um, what somebody says, a a critical voice or some newspaper journalist, writes something they're not supposed to, lose your job, be detained, you don't even have to go on trial. And so I think Americans are seeing that with this virus, that Mm. the Chinese government was not straightforward um, with their own people or with the rest of the world and we're all paying the price. And so people start to realize, huh, should we believe that the Chinese government uh, Mm. really is making a nice life for the Maybe We should believe the Tibetans and the Uyghurs when they say um, they're suffering these horrific abuses. So then the ordinary person is able to, uh, next time they see that kind of reporting, it sort of resonates more and, Um, Certainly, it's past time for the U.S. government to have a a stated policy that will uh, do a couple of more, even stronger policy moves than um, the government itself has already taken.
0: Now, is this the first bill, speaking of policy, is this the first bill passed in honor of the Uyghurs, or have there been other measures taken to defend them? It's the
1: first legislation coming out of this Congress ever um, to protect the Uyghurs. Although I can say, you know, if you're interested in the historical sidelight, back in the 1950s, there was a Captive Nations Bill, which was aimed at looking at world communism. And when the, particularly the Soviet Union was um, su- suppressing national identities and national um, movements, mm-hmm. and actually the East Turkestan, which is the homeland of the Uyghurs, was actually listed as, excuse me, listed as, as one of the captive nations that it was forgotten about. Um, and in, in more recent times, uh, this is the bill, and not, it's not just the first in the US, it's the first anywhere in the world. The European Union, the European Parliament did pass two resolutions, but in terms of passing an actual policy, um if once this if this passes in the house and is signed with the president by this president it will be the first anywhere and we actually really hope that um that other countries will realize it's they can take steps and because it has to be a global response
0: sure by the way the washington post has covered this so you guys have had some mainstream coverage as well which is great
1: yeah um even just recently one of the most important well first of all the editorial page has been great mm-hmm. um headlines just saying in very plain terms what's really happening is um, beyond brutal it's beyond imagination you know mm. concentrates concentration camps for children um china must stop this brutal cleansing mm. uh, and trying to. And, and then on the reporting side fantastic reporting by a number of reporters including just most recently on on Mar- um, february 20 AIDS, uh, the Beijing bureau chief of the Washington Post Anna Fifield did an undercover story about going to a factory in a city in northwest China northeast China called Qingdao and looking at one of the biggest Nike factories in the world right and finding out that they had Uyghur workers who were forced labor they were had no freedom they were like locked up not in a prison, but in a factory, making fact-making products
0: right. for American In a very consumers. dangerous environment, too, no less.
1: They were in a segregated dormitory. They have special monitoring apps on their phones. They have to have mandatory Chinese study, this ideological conditioning, to make sure that they don't, um, their thinking doesn't come out of line. I mean, does that sound like Big Brother or what? Uh, and then they had a special minder. Um, I I don't think she could find out whether they were actually from the police or they were hired by the factory. They had to be watched over. Um, They weren't allowed to go home. They did get to go out and shop um, about once a week, she found out. But this is tremendous, tremendous um, slam on the reputation of Nike, which is supposed to have clean supply chains and follow sustainability practices. Mm -hmm. So Washington Post absolutely has been not only covering what's happening to the Uyghurs, but connecting it to our consumers.
0: Well, and it's so important because we talked about this before. The NBA, the first week of this whole controversy with the Rockets, we're like, oh, don't criticize, don't criticize them. Who's legal, Whose side are you on? You know, it's like you got to be on our side, right? On the American side. Are
1: you self-censoring because of why you want to sell your, you know, your broadcasting rights in China? Um, you don't have to criticize every country in the world for everything. The question is when it's... Um, real brutality. This is not a matter of, you know, I think you can talk about degrees and I'm, you know, in the human rights world, we'd like to talk about all rights are indivisible. Of course, that's true. I don't want to minimize anybody else's suffering, but when you have things like war crimes, when you have gas attacks, when you have genocidal scale persecution, um, it really becomes more of a question of how you can avoid, uh, how you can say, I need to remain silent to maintain my market access. Mm.
0: And it's, just, it's just heartbreaking to think of that way. But now that we're into technology and broadcasting and Big Brother, has the Uyghur, have the Uyghurs faced any issues through WhatsApp? Have they been a group that's been targeted through WhatsApp for trying to break free and set themselves free from China? That's a great
1: question. Um, definitely Uyghurs uh, have to assume, they all assume that their devices are monitored and I think a lot of people could learn from the Uyghurs. You know, you have to have a sort of self-discipline that if you really have something that you don't want other people to know about, don't do it on a device. You have to meet somebody face-to-face, keep your phone away. It's very hard to do that in real life, and now in our um, quarantine, uh, it truly has become impossible, but certainly hackers have attacked Uyghur chat, um, chats through and uh, attacks on Facebook, so Facebook and uh, websites taken down because it's through DDoS attacks um, and then spyware and malware, uh, all that that whole gamut they've definitely experienced um, in the past.
0: Has there been an investigation in that? Is it possible that's uh, the government's doing, or is that kind of assumed, or is there actual? data and facts to back that assumption up.
1: There is. So for those who are interested in looking up um, Citizen Lab in Canada and uh, another uh, organization, I'm forgetting, um, have published a detailed report where they were able to trace back who was conducting these reports. So it's a state-directed attack and it is aimed at uh, silencing people, intimidating them, inhibiting them from being in touch with other people, um, both to you know, try to silence them, right, just so that you cannot speak out publicly um, and therefore um, help China avoid criticism, the government avoid criticism for what it's doing. But it also, um, it's just in the DNA of a dictatorship to... where all the bureaucracies their job is don't allow criticism if I allow criticism then I'm not doing my job and I can't get promoted and so it creates a vicious cycle of repression and there's just no concern about the um the harm to individuals who are at the other end of that Louisa I mean we're we my organization actually issued a report last August yeah
0: no go for it tell it so what was the report So we
1: wrote a report, this is what it was called, Repression Without Borders. Everybody knows Doctors Without Borders, which is great. And there are other humanitarian groups, um, journalists without borders. In this case, the government of China does not recognize the sovereignty of the United States, right? And has, sure. continues to have police whose job it is, is to send threatening notes by uh, phone chat. So this WeChat Chinese chat system to Uyghurs um, to warn them, um you should watch out you should take care for your family that they if you if you want them to be taken care of if you want them to avoid bad things so we wrote the whole report and we our organization we actually tried to brief law enforcement went to federal law enforcement and we said this is happening it's a violation of their rights under federal and state law you cannot threaten people over phones Mm. and what we learned was that law enforcement can definitely track and the, the and the FBI has a mandate to track civil rights violations and hate crimes. But the FBI can only do so much. It has to prosecute. Its only way of enforcing those is to prosecute the violators and therefore have a deterrent effect. But if the, what happens when the perpetrators are sitting in China?
0: Well, yeah. And I was just going to say, I've had Jeff Mordok on. He's a DOJ reporter at The Washington Times. Unfortunately, the State Department even isn't even really you know, prosecuting hate crimes done to Asian Americans here, which is not a good sign.
1: Yes, it's very hard to do that. I mean, there's always a danger in talking about hate crimes um, in this casual way, because we don't want to be um, creating thought crimes. Like, if you assault somebody, and it's because of racial animus, have you done them more harm than assaulting them just randomly. But it is true that if there's a pattern of discrimination where there's a emboldening of criminals to hurt other people because of the victims race, for sure, let's track that and try to um, ensure that we counter that with a with enforcement and deterrence, that that is not acceptable in our society. And right. um, But the good thing is that this bill has solved mm-hmm. one of our problems actually, because there's a report a little notice report in the bill which would require the FBI to track and collect data about threats received by Uyghurs from Chinese state agents and give a report to the Congress. If that weren't asked for the FBI can track but it's all confidential as it should be. Um, they can't just on their own say we have a report look at these 6,000 re- uh, you know threats received somebody do something about it that's all kept quiet. So now that the Congress will get this report in 180 days, that opens the door for the Congress to start asking questions, hold hearings, or um, communicate with the executive branch and say, look, we're getting this information, we need to come together and, uh, you know, we want to see a policy response to deter the Chinese government from continuing to violate our sovereignty in this country and violating their free speech rights.
0: And of course, now they want to be recognized for the $2 billion they've spent to Fix the pandemic. It's such a, it's so baloney. Yeah. And
1: yet, what are your guests saying about that? I mean, does anybody, I mean, are there some people who are saying, well, at least they're trying to help even though you know, they themselves, the Chinese people themselves suffered from this disease first.
0: I mean, I haven't really talked to anybody about this yet, but it, when I saw that headline, it's like, people are going to eat right out of their hand because they don't want to lose their connections. There are a bunch of people in politics that don't want to lose their connection with China. It's really disgusting.
1: Yeah. But I will say it's it's also true. I mean, I signed a, st- a public statement um, that was issued three weeks ago, actually in USA Today, which was from 200 foreign policy experts and analysts that said, actually, we are concerned that um, anger over what came from China, this terrible disease, which has devastated so many people's lives and health, and it's continuing to dest- devastate our lives and our economy, our jobs, everybody's education, all the kids who can't graduate, um, so many people who are in depression and having terrible family problems globally,
0: Yeah, huh.
1: um, it really is a, a horrific situation. And so if that anger, it turns into uh, anger at Chinese people. And so these very violent attacks, um, a child happening. attacked in a mall, I mean, this that is terrible. So this statement condemned that and said that we really need to separate um, a strategic... Uh, Pushback against what the Chinese government is getting away with,
0: mm. Louisa, um, this is, this and, is so and, and
1: separate that from what um, Asian people in our own society—it's Chinese Americans, Asian Americans, um, everybody—should they they're, they're not the government.
0: No, they're not, and I, I I agree there has to be that distinction made, or we're going to lose another part of this country in a way, right? We're going to lose another part of the country. Yeah,
1: I mean, I I don't look it now that you can see me on YouTube, but um, I I come from an Asian American family, actually a Chinese American family, um, when you know a couple generations back, and um, so absolutely it's true that, that the fabric of America includes people from coming from all over. It's one of the strengths of our country, and we, you know, sometimes it takes some time, and people do suffer in the meantime. But we, I do think we have we appeal to our better better natures, and we do recognize acceptance of all um, people from everywhere, whatever they look like, whatever their languages are. So now's the time not to forget that exactly. We can't um, take out uh, frustration against people who happen to be from China.
0: We really, we really cannot. Uh, Louisa, my, my biggest question right now is, and maybe you don't have to answer this, but do you think there's a sector that wants us to be controlled? Like China controls its people.
1: Mm. So you're worried about people saying, let's go ahead and have surveillance on our phones.
0: I'm just worried us. about us. Be, even putting us in masks kind of feels like we're starting to become like, you know, the streets of China where everybody has to wear mask. It's like, we're not, that's not our issue. That's not our, our freedom here. Yeah. So many issues.
1: Um, well, one way to think about it is one way we can distinguish ourselves from these dictatorships is that to allow local, decision-making. Maybe you do have to have some kind of government guidance or rules, but isn't it better to have that at the state level than the, than the federal level? That's mm-hmm. a personal opinion, nothing from my, um, my human rights work. And that allows, so I live in Virginia, and um, for sure some of the more open and rural areas, uh, people can go get haircuts if they just take proper precautions and ironically the mask which makes you feel uncomfortable actually might allow you to do it. Well no that's like if you're the, that I, close to, if you're half an hour next to someone doing your hair you might want to say let's not breathe in each other's air for half an hour straight. Um, but let's go ahead and have that haircut.
0: I agree. So let me track back. So yeah, in the long run I feel like I don't want us to become wearing masks all the time, but for right now we do need it. In fact, if you remember the CDC said you know, if you go to work, you should wear your mask, but you can go back to work. That plan kind of got shelved and put out of commission. And it's like, no, that's a great plan. Why not enact that? Yeah. Well, it's
1: confusing too, because at the beginning they told people not to wear a mask because they want, they, even the healthcare workers didn't have it. And for sure, if you're in that kind of sustained contact over time, from what I understand, that's that's much more likely to really give you a, a really terrible dose. So,
0: um, Louise, is there any study on how many Uyghurs' deaths were actually hidden by China during the COVID crisis over there when it first hit?
1: That's a great question. There is so much secrecy in the Uyghur region of China that we just don't know the official figures. Uh, I believe are still that in the whole entire region, which has about twenty-two, twenty-three million people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, bigger than some European countries. It's just. One region uh, that there were only 76, 76 cases and three deaths. And a lot of people just don't believe that. Um, just like we don't believe, uh, unfortunately, the other statistics related to COVID coming from the Chinese government. Um, and there were absolutely um, indications that, well, the government has tried to cover up hmm. the detention hmm. of probably, you know, at least between one and two million people. And why wouldn't they cover up these deaths? Um, So I I really can't tell you, but the the Uyghurs truly fear, truly fear that um, if if the outbreak comes, that they wouldn't even get help because the government has dehumanized and demonized the Uyghur people and would, in some way,
0: the local officials would not be rushing to prioritize their health. Louisa, I've got to ask, and Louisa Grieve is my guest today. She is the director of human advocacy, I believe, at the Wigger Rights Project. Is that right? Yes. So, I'm top I my head, but uh, no, I'm I'm glad you are joining us. And this whole thing is so disturbing. And I'm trying to think of what I was going to ask next, but it is um, the the secrecy drives me nuts, and it should drive everybody nuts. But it seems like some people don't even care that they covered it up. That's right. Well,
1: the other question is the surveillance, though, too, because some um, things, you know, I always like to say that the experience of the Uyghurs should be a, a red alert a warning for the rest of the world that you do trade some privacy for convenience. Every app that you have that shows your location, even it goes back before we had smartphones. Do you remember this? You would have a loyalty card, especially at the grocery store, right? You put in oh, your yeah. phone number yep. and then that's how you get the extra coupons, 20 cents off here, right? 40 cents off there. What the heck? And people I know who are more privacy, um, concerned would say, no, I'm not giving them my phone number because I am giving something up to get that discount. Yeah. And so if you have a loyalty card just at a grocery store, um, they have a complete record of everything you've ever bought and probably just use it to restock the supplies, right? Probably no nefarious purpose, nothing that really could limit your rights. But nowadays, of course. Um, So have you had anyone on the show who um, covers what's called um, surveillance capitalism?
0: I have to get someone on to talk about that. I think
1: that would be useful. I'm not an expert, but it's one of those dangers that China has shown us the way that the more data you collect and the more easy it is to collate the data and cross-check it and use it for big data analytics or even prediction and artificial intelligence the more a bad actor doesn't have to have armies or you know a diplomat or a seat at the un or any of the traditional requirements of state power they can exert that power simply through the data and there are some people who are concerned that in fact the state china is collecting so much data because it would it does intend to dominate the digital world, which means both traditional trade-offs, like, you know, just like Saudi Arabia has the oil, so it has more power than if it didn't, right? It can dictate the terms of certain things. China can dictate to the whole world. Um, it's how its interests are treated because it's sitting on top of the data and maybe even able to reach in. It sounds a little bit
0: um, Orwellian or something Yes, like that. it does. Yeah. Or even yeah. like
1: it's a movie plot. Could they reach in and, you know, basically blackmail people by saying, here's the data I have on you. And do that on a large scale. They do that in the spy-to-spy spy world, right? International spies, obviously, people are entrapped because they have secrets, so they're, they're pressured to spy. But what if you did that on a large scale? What if you had our members of Congress? Um, and...
0: That is why mobile voting is very risky to me. It's a reason why mm. I'm not happy with that. And uh, there's also this feeling with Orwellian style. We are sort of seeing the snowball Napoleon, animal farm take place in america right now because who's controlling who leadership is controlling what we do and we're some are starving i mean it's not cool it's not great it's not something we should be easily signed up for and what you're saying here with the data surveillance surveillance capitalism it's why they're protesting at these different state capitals right
1: so it's, it's good to raise those questions and and part of the problem is though with us because can we say as a consumer, I want a phone that doesn't track me? Mm. Um, that's why it's so insidious, it's very hard to give up those conveniences, right? And you they, can't even buy a map, I mean we, my family was a holdout, partly because I've, I've been working on human rights in China so long and also specifically on the Weibo crisis, I see how dangerous it is. Um, I held out, I didn't have a phone for the longest time. Uh, so I didn't have a GPS. I never bought a GPS.
0: Okay. Well, that's so not... if I
1: went somewhere unfamiliar, I had to either look it up on my computer first because I did use the computer maps or in the car, I would have a paper map. When was the last time you saw a paper map? I mean, you probably don't drive, but...
0: <laughs> I really um, don't yet, but it is true. And and I also have my grief when New York City drivers were only required to have GPS. They didn't have to know a map of New York. You're a okay. cab driver. How, how do you not have a map? How do you not know what why rely on the GPS? That really got me frustrated. Now, you know, last time we talked, and I hope there's been progress on this. You talked about a GoFundMe that you guys were doing a petition. How did that go?
1: Oh, that's really great. I'm trying to remember which one it was. Um, I can definitely recommend, maybe I said it was a, called Avaz, A-V-A-A-Z. A-B-A-A-Z. Yes, that's, that's yes. the one, yeah. Okay, so they're still trying to get to a million. Okay, so all of your, Alex, all of your friends, please go to avaz.org, A-V-A-A-Z. Um, it's, it's definitely over 900,000, and I know some student groups, there's um, a group of students called Students for Xinjiang who've been organizing, even off campus, they've taken advantage of the technology and put on a, a virtual um,
0: oh, panel last great.
1: Friday. That's great. Which really was good. And then they asked people to sign these petitions and they're trying to push a Vaz. And I actually had a, a Muslim student group, Um, just a bunch of volunteers who said, look, as with Muslim Americans, we want to be active in civic affairs. And one of the issues we want to work on is this Uyghur crisis in China. What can we do? And so they're going to also um, boost that same petition. Um, So I should have written down the number at the last time we talked so I could report the progress since then, but I haven't done that. I'll, I'll, we do have my, a GoFundMe for on humanitarian things. Um, I'll just mention it because it's really quite heart, heartwarming that 45 different Uyghur groups from everywhere from Turkey to Kazakhstan to Germany, Finland, Norway, mm-hmm. Australia, everywhere where the diaspora has gone, they all came together to recognize that um, a lot of Uyghurs who are stuck without proper papers, undocumented, because the Chinese government won't um, give them their proper papers, won't renew their passports, mm-hmm. so they're stuck in limbo in Turkey with the economy, the COVID economy, meaning that even the some of the casual work that they were, some of them were doing, is drying up, and there's so much need, and so they did it do a good GoFundMe, and it was it was tremendous. It raised over a hundred thousand dollars, which is really heartwarming. Very-
0: Congratulations to them on that. Now, Louisa, for those who may not know your you know, backstory, or may even follow the project, but only know you by name and through the title, who is Louisa Grieve? How did you get involved with this?
1: Um, I, well, I actually mentioned my my family, my grandmother um, was born in a little village in Southern China. And so because of that, I had a tremendous interest in Chinese people, culture, history. And then when I started studying it, I I really had a a wake-up moment. I actually, I literally have a journal when I was 21 years old. I was writing in my journal. I said, I really feel the rose-colored glasses have come off. And I realized that uh, the current government of China, the Chinese Communist Party, is not doing its best or deserves sympathy because the third world was so oppressed by, you know, the rich countries or something even if China was a victim of other imperialist powers or other countries in past centuries, it doesn't excuse brutal, vicious dictatorship that mm. um, it was. And so from then on, I paid a lot of attention to human rights. Well,
0: I'm glad you I have really it. Really out and, of idealism. And I'm sure that you get excited every time you see, even Flushing, I saw a Uyghur rights rally in flushing queens and so there is a, a momentum here in the, no kidding. In the yeah i've got to send you that link so i'd
1: love to see that yeah flushing is a big center of immigration from china to the united states and i think of it as a chinese place it's great that people there were paying attention to the Niger crisis.
0: well louisa thank you so much and one last question with this whole thing did we actually take china's lead on this did we really just take their lead and say nothing's really going to happen
1: About how to deal with COVID?
0: Yeah, yep.
1: I do. Oh, it's a big, complicated story. It's nothing that I have expertise on, but I will say that um, it's a a natural feeling. I don't think it'll happen the, the next time we have a pandemic, but it did look like, for those of us watching, what was happening to the poor people of Wuhan, boy, this is really terrible. What a terrible disease. And then the disease caused these lockdowns. And a lot of suffering, a lot of um, careless uh, policies that were basically very, very cruel and forcing people to stay indoors. And at the same time, we knew that the authorities who should have shut down travel and should have told people don't gather, they had a huge Chinese New Year's celebration with tens of thousands of people that absolutely never should have happened. Um, So what you can learn from that is one you have to take it seriously disease does no no borders and secondly uh, try to do a better job um and unfortunately we're still in the middle of working that out
0: and uh we were we were talking that new year's weekend and said well, how is this happening why are they still allowing travel it was kind of insane and of course you know we're also seeing the who be more at fault than the last time we talked so that's another issue there too absolutely So if anyone wants to pay attention right you know
1: you've got the un headquarters there in new york I lived a block
0: away from it for for about 10 years of my life, the first 10. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And that play, and that is a a battleground for influence, and the very blunt way of stating it is it's a battle of um, liberal democratic ideas um, with um, ideologies of state that put the state first over the individual, um, that uh, rights are what governments make them rather than inhering in every every human being have equal human dignity. And then from there you build, uh, try to build governance systems that minimize the assaults mm-hmm. on human dignity and individual rights and for them, you know, do their best without ever being perfect. But the other way around the, the Russia's and the China's, the state's parties that are in the UN are actually trying to turn a lot of those UN institutions around to protecting states over protecting individuals. And right now there's a good balance of, um, protecting sovereignties to try to prevent wars um, just once there's a border please don't mess with it and certainly not by force that's the peace side and then the human rights side and freedom side has to do with protecting individuals and in not states and so china is a bad actor so for sure that'd be a great topic for another uh, another show of yours Alex.
0: louisa one last thing where can people find you the the human Uyghur human rights project and read the bill that was just passed
1: Great questions, so our website is uhrp.org, Uhrp.org. uh, for, uh, we're even, we're certainly on Facebook, uh, the Uyghur Human Rights Project. The bill itself, well, as with most bills, it's really hard to read the actual language. Of course, for all the politically active people watching, you do go to congress.gov and you, um, just type in S. 3744, and you'll find the bill that just passed the Senate. Uh, but to get a shorter version, you can go to our website. We have a press release that says, UHRP thanks the Senate for passing the bill. And actually down at the very bottom of that press release, there's a link to a short five-point summary that we created about the bill.
0: And it's important to talk about it now, that, that way, if you want this to happen, call your congressman, right? Just say, hey, vote again for this. That's right.
1: It's where the senators already voted. They did their work. You can thank them. That would be great. Actually, I I happen to know that some of those senators would like to hear whether um, that constituents care about those and then the House. But can I just suggest that um, as much as the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act um, needs attention, if anyone's interested, they should also consider the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection uh, Prevention Act. whether anyone can remember that. So think about forced labor. If you're calling your member of Congress, say forced labor, really horrifying. I don't want my Nikes made by people kept under lock and key by the Chinese government. So stop the forced labor in the Chinese factories.
0: Louise, you guys are part of a, a revolution there. So I'm glad that you're joining every time you can. So thanks so much.
1: Thanks for your time, Alex. Great questions.
0: And I'm Alex Garrett. We'll talk to you tomorrow.